Um, like uh, like, every, like uh, David said, my name is Jonathan Clark. Um, my wife Caroline here. I'm the, uh, the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship up in Las Cruces at New Mexico State University. Uh, New Mexico State, RUF, is a, it's a long-storied um, RUF. And so uh, it's a ministry of the Presbytery. So in that sense, it's your ministry as much as it is in Las Cruces. Um, RUF exists to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Reach and equip. That's why we're on campus. We're trying to extend the kingdom, extend God's rule, um, even on campuses, which can be weird places, um, but they're, they're important places. Um, so a little bit about me before I just start talking to you about the text. Uh, I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I grew up in a really strong Christian home at a, in a PCA church for what that's worth. I don't know. Um, so uh, it's worth some things, not worth some other things. So... Um, then I my, uh, I, my parents are still in Colorado Springs. I went all the way from Colorado to New York City for my undergrad and studied humanities. I stayed in New York for two more years and uh, worked for RUF as an intern. Um, so I did two years there as an intern. And then I moved to St. Louis, Missouri and um, started my uh, Master's of Divinity. Met my wife there, Caroline. She was also doing her Master's of Divinity. Let me tell you, she is a theological heavy hitter. She can, She's really good at discerning what God's Word is saying and applying it to our world. So, like David said, this is a joint project. She is very involved with the ministry with me. So, um, we've been married for about a year, and we moved here in January. So, we've just just completed our first semester, um, and so we're thrilled to be here, um, thrilled to be in, Las, in, the, in the West again, in Las Cruces, and uh, we're excited to be here today. So, um, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to... Um, 1 John chapter 4, or uh, the words are printed in the, um, the words are printed in the, in your bulletin, um, and stand with me while I read God's word. 1 John chapter 4, this is verse 7 through 12, this is God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has been manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one, has ever, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. God. Go ahead and be seated. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Holy Spirit, Son, we pray that your spirit would be present with us as we discern what your word says. Illumine our hearts. Speak through me. Things that I say that do not align, may we forget them. Things that, we, that I say that do align, Spirit, Mark them onto our hearts, more than just our minds, but our hearts, so that we would be a changed people, so that we would go out more enlivened by your love, more equipped, more conformed to the image of Jesus, so that we would love those around us within our church and within our city. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. So like I'd said, um, Doing campus ministry at a, at a college is a, is a tricky thing There's, because it's just, it's, this is a big mystery to them. They don't understand a lot of the, about this. Um, and, and yet we're on campus to reach and equip, reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. 
And uh, I'm convinced, we're all convinced that the best way to do that is with God's incredible love. God's incredible love reaches and it equips. It reaches and equips his sacrificial love. And so this theme, this, our, this fall, our theme as we've been looking through um, this book of 1 John, as we were walking through it, our theme was by this we know love. By this we know love because I'm convinced that all of us don't fully understand God's love, but especially college students. They don't know what love is at all, but especially what God's love is. What God's love is. And so we've asked, what is love? How can we know what love is? And I'm, no other book than First John tells us, gives us this concentrated look at what God's love is and how it affects, how it transforms our life. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a very concentrated summary of a concentrated book on God's love. It's so concentrated that in five verses, John uses the word love 14 times. Some form either as a noun or as a verb. Over and over and over again, he's saying love, 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 God's love, love one another, over and over again. He tells us over and over, he tells us about God's love. And he gives us the clearest picture he can of God's love. The clearest picture of his God's love that he can give us. And so today we're going to look at God's love in three ways. Three ways I want us to see God's love. First, I want us to see God's love in his character. God's love in his character. Second, I want us to see God's love in his actions. God's love in his actions. And third, I want us to see our response. God's love, our love in our response to it. So God's love in his character God's love and his actions and God and our response. So first, this first one will be a little longer because we're looking at the face and character of God and I don't know if I can do that in 20 minutes, but we'll give it a shot. So, <laughs> um, so God's love and his character. So the first thing I want us to see here is that God's character is fundamentally loving. God, the God of the Bible is, is fundamentally a God of love. There's a lot we can say about God But I think we have to start with God is love. God is love. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean when we say God is love? We can throw that out there, three words, but we're left going. It's a lot to grab onto. Well, I think one way that we could say what that actually means is it means this. It It means that God's fundamental disposition towards you and towards me is one of love. God's fundamental disposition towards you and towards me is love. Over and over again, throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, all across it, what do we see? We, got, we see God acting and moving and revealing himself to be a loving God. Genesis 1, God creates the world. God creates the world. We don't know exactly how that happened, but we know that God did it because he didn't need it. He didn't need the creation. He didn't need humans so that we would worship him or a creation so that he could. No, he did it because he loves his creation. The language in Genesis is very specific that God does it because he delights in the creative activity. He delights in creating act- beings that will then praise him because he is worthy of that praise. God creates because he loves. He creates because he loves. He creates a world that's full of, that's, a, that's an exciting world. It's not just like a monochromatic, boring, sort of ticking thing. But it's a dynamic, pulsing place that's full of energy. It's full of exciting smells and sounds. He creates humans he, who can love God and each other. He creates good food. He creates sex. 
He creates relationships, sunsets, canyons, giant cities, small towns, snowy peaks, all of these things, starry skies, all the way down to like chubby babies. He creates all these things. Why? Because he loves creation. He's fundamentally a God of love. He creates everything out of love. Well, some of us may wonder, maybe some of you are here today and you're saying, but what about the times where he does things that feel really unloving? And maybe you're thinking of times in your own life or times in Scripture where you're like, this doesn't seem like a very loving God. Isn't God full of wrath? And doesn't that wrath seem cruel sometimes? Well, that's a, that's a whole other topic. And if you want to talk, I can, I'm happy to talk with you or, or members of the session. That's another sermon. But what I want us to see that, that know that even in his wrath, God is loving. He's purifying things that are broken and making it and restoring love back to himself. And, and I want to I give us a short example, even from the Old Testament, that shows that even there, God is full of love. Even there, God is full of love. Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Now, to get a picture of this, we have to walk a mile in the shoes of the people who this is written to. Exodus 34, this is the, um, the Israelites. And uh, if you're familiar with the Israelites, they had just, they had been, in, they'd been enslaved in uh, Egypt for how long? 400 years. A long time. They had been enslaved for a long time. And, and you, you, know, you step into their mind a little bit and you think, wait a minute, this is a people who, they're like, wait a minute, who are we? We're this people. We know we don't necessarily belong here. We know that we have a father in Abraham. They've heard stories of this father Abraham who had sons, and somehow we ended up down here, and somehow we've just been oppressed and suppressed, and we're, the, we're, 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 bearing, you know, we're, we're building Egypt up, but this doesn't, something feels wrong. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes out of the desert who was a prince in Egypt, and all of a sudden he says, I'm gonna, we're, your, your God through me is going is to free you. And then all of a sudden, in ten plagues, he wipes out the greatest superpower in the entire world, and they cross through an ocean on dry land, and they get to the other side, and they're like, what just happened? <laughs> what, what is this God? Who are we? Who are we that a God would do this for us? That's what, you would, that's what I would be thinking. If you're like, who are we? And all of a sudden this God comes and saves you. Who is this God with which we have to do and who's dealing with us? And God's, listen to these are God's very first words to the, the nation of Israelites when they're asking it, asking this question. Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, his personal name, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's first words that he tells his people who he is after redeeming them, he says, I am a loving God. I am fundamentally disposed towards you in a loving way, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that steadfast love is God's covenant-making God, His covenant name and His covenant-keeping God that He makes promises and He keeps them. Over and over, God describes Himself, His character as fundamentally disposed towards love. Psalm 136, that's that psalm that 
You get tongue-tied reading it out loud because over and over it says, His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Over and over again he says this. He creates out of love. He rescues. He redeems out of love. And I think that's, I think that's hard for us to understand today, isn't it? I think that many of our, at least for me, I speak for myself, many of our emotional and spiritual upheavals stem from, they start from doubting this. We start with doubting God's love, right? Think of, the, think of Israel and Exodus again. There is such a great example. What happens right after this? They go into the desert and they get thirsty. What do they do? They grumble. God loves them, gives them water. They get a little further. What do they do? They're hungry. They grumble. God gives them food. They grumble. What do they do a little further? They get then they see the Canaanites and they're huge. They're like, oh, we can't do this. And they grumble. And we go, oh, look at Israel. And then I look at my own heart. I look into my own heart and I go, there it is. Every time they would get to a new point and they would say, ah, this time God abandoned us. He brought us this far, but this time he's abandoned us. He brought us through the Red Sea, but now we're thirsty. He's going to leave us to die in the desert. And I see myself doing the same thing. I see myself growing up in a Christian family. I see myself, I was, when I was in college, I get to college and I'm like, oh, this time God's abandoned me. I'm going to run out of money in college. And God provided. And then I get to seminary and I'm like, well, no, and I, then I worked for RUF and I had to raise my support. And I was like, God's going to, I'm not going to be able to raise this money. God's abandoned me. He's, he's brought me this far and now he's going to abandon me. And the Lord provides out of his love. And then I get to seminary, and then every time there's something new that comes up, and I say, this time, this time, God's been faithful up until now, but this time he's going to abandon me. I doubt God's love. I doubt whether or not he really is disposed towards me as his son in love. Just this week, I was talking with my counselor. I see a counselor just to process life, and I was I, I can understand God's sovereignty. I, I'm a, you know, I studied philosophy in college. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Presbyterian. We do theology. So I can understand, yeah, God is in total control. He has to be. He's God. I get that. That makes sense in my mind. But then there's this gap often in my real life of does God actually love me when life, in day-to-day life, and I, am I alone in this? Am I the only one? I don't think I am because, you know, when you get that surprise bill that you didn't expect, this bill shows up. Or when you get that phone call at 2 a.m. and your heart drops. Or when your work is stressful and your boss is pressing you for more and more. Or maybe it's your family. Maybe your parents or your sibling or your children just messes up the family peace. You know, we all have that family peace and then someone goes and screws with it and the whole family's in shambles. It happens to all of us. Or when you have to move across the country or you have to start a new job or something happens with your kids over and over again, when you remember that something, someone, some, something that someone did to you that hurt you deeply, all of these things, they all have the potential to say, where is God? Does God love me? Does he care? Well, hear what I'm saying today. Hear this. If you hear nothing else, this week, hear this, because God is fundamentally disposed towards you and towards me in love. We need to hear that. 
Every day, day in, day out, we have things that happen in our lives that make us doubt that and that say, this time God will abandon me. Never forget that God is disposed towards you and towards me in love because He is a loving God. His character is one of love. Come back to the text with me. Um, And I want us to notice something very important that John says here. Notice um, Notice in verse 8, he says, Anyone that does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now notice what he does not say there. Notice he does not say love is God. He says God is love. And that's a really important distinction, especially with where we are living today in 21st century America. Our world today tells us that love is God. Our world today tells us that love is God. It just tells us that, that, that some sort of vague feeling of acceptance and tolerance, that's what's important. That's what will make society tick. That's what's most important in our world today. But that's not what John says. John says God is love. And we need to feel the challenge of that. If God is love, then that means if, I mean, if love is God, then that means we as humans get to define love. And today we've defined it as some sort of vague, misty acceptance, tolerance of others. And we're paralyzed by that because we don't know what to do when there's actual conflict. Second, if love is God, it means that you and I, that all the pressure is on you and I, all, I mean, you and me, sorry, all the pressure is on you and me to love others the best that we can. It means that we're stuck on earth basically to love the best we can. Drum it up. All the pressure. you got to love. Go out there and love. It's on you if love is God. And if you fail, well then game over. You might as well try better next time. If there's a lost relationship, that's what happens. Because you're on your own to love. And third, if love is God, then that means that you're on your own. So that when life gets hard, when tragedy strikes... When the bottom falls out, you're on your own in this universe. You're on your own to do it. But praise God, that's not what John says, right? Amen? He says God is love. God is love. That means that there is a real person, a God who has feelings, who has likes and dislikes, personality cares, who thinks and feels very similar, probably even more truly than any of us ever will. Our actions are a mixed bag. Sometimes we can do some sort of loving things, but often our, our actions are really motivated by selfishness. Here is God who is always completely acting out of his love. Always, always acting out of pure love for himself, for his creation, for his people. Over and over again. Yes, life is hard. Following Jesus often feels more like bearing a splintery cross than an easy yoke. But Scripture tells us over and over again that God will not abandon you because God is motivated towards love towards you. Love has to start with God. It has to start with God and it has to start with a God who is loving. That's God's character. God is a God of love. He loves His people. He loves His creation. But that brings us to our second point, God's action. God's action which is love. Our first point is God's character. I've made the case that we should think about God as more than just a being, but God is the person who loves. Well, if he's a loving person, we should assess him based on his actions. That's how we assess somebody, right? If you're going to see who, what a person is like, we look at how they behave. What are their actions? 
What are God's actions? What are God's actions? Well, does God's action align with his character? Well, the short answer is yes. Over and over again in Scripture, we've already looked at an example from Exodus where God acts in alignment with his character. He acts loving. He rescues his people from slavery. But John gives us an even greater example, doesn't he? He gives us an even better example of God's love in action. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. That's God's love in action. I want to break down verse 10 into smaller pieces for us because it's such an important verse. Look, look what he says he first said. He says first, not that we have loved God. Not that we have loved God. And other parts of Scripture will put a finer edge on that and they will say that we are actually hostile naturally towards God. We want nothing to do with God. We reject His love. We reject His person. Scripture calls that sin. Sin is a hostility. If God's fundamental disposition towards us is love, our fundamental disposition towards God is rejection. It's sinful hostility towards God. But what does it say? It says, He loved us. He loved us. And it's not just some sort of vague feeling that He gives us towards, oh, I love you. No, it's active love that He moves close to us. He sent His only Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. Sin is the rejection of God's love. Sin is our failure to love those around us. Sin deserves wrath. When you reject love, it deserves wrath, Scripture tells us. And Jesus is the propitiation for the wrath of God. Propitiation. That's a big word. We don't always use it. Probably for, our, <laughs> for the best. But we have to break it down because this is what the text tells us. What is the propitiation? Well, when you hear that word, I want you to think about deflected wrath. That's what it is. It's deflected wrath. Wrath that is going straight towards you and me that we justly deserve and it glances off. It goes in another direction. Think of it this way. You commit the worst possible crime you can imagine. Whatever it is. The worst thing you can imagine. You're guilty. You know you're guilty. The judge knows you're guilty. The jury knows you're guilty. The newspapers know you're guilty. Everyone knows you're guilty. And so you're condemned to prison. And as the door is sliding shut, all of a sudden, this foot comes in, the door slams shut. Someone ram, opens the door, pulls you out, jumps in and slams the door before you even know what happened. That begins to get at what propitiation is. Someone else is taking the wrath the sentence, the condemnation that you deserve, that I deserve, and saying, I'll take it. I'll take that penalty. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He deflects the wrath that we deserve onto himself. He takes the punishment so that we don't, get, that we don't have to. But there's more than that. It's more than just deflected wrath. Look at verse 9. What's the result of the propitiation? Verse 9. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might, what? Live through Him. Live through Him. Eternal life. Over and over again, John, in all of his letters and his gospel, 
life, eternal life, is one of his great themes. He says, God came to bring us life. Not only does God's love mean that wrath we deserve is deflected onto Jesus, but the life that Jesus deserves is placed onto us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what makes Christianity unlike every other thought and religion in the entire world. God loves us actively, passionately. He pursues us, even when we reject Him, so that we can have eternal life. That's good news. That is the best news the entire world could possibly hear. A loving person does acts of love. God is loving, and so He does loving acts. The most loving thing in the world. He delivers us from our sins. All right, if this is true, how are we to respond? How are we to respond? And here's where we get to the real intention of this passage. This is what this passage is actually about, is our response to God's love. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Then look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see what John's doing there? He's bookending the gospel with, here's, what we have to be, here's who we need to be. Here's what God has done. Here's who we need to be. And if you have a chance, look at this D.A. Carson quote at the beginning of the, in your bulletins. It's amazing what he says. He says that this, that this passage is fundamentally about how we're supposed to behave in response to what God has done. He's trying to, John is trying to stir his audience up with love with the greatest exhortation he can, the gospel. He's saying we ought to love one another. He's admonishing them. We ought to love one another. He's encouraging them. Let us love one another. He wants to encourage them and says, look at what God has done for you. Look at what God has done for you. Do you see how amazing it is? If it's true, how do you just ignore it? How do you just ignore it? And as I've been thinking through, you know, I, I thought a lot about how do, we, how do we illustrate this? And so I have this, um, we have a brick wall in our house that faces south. Um, and uh, so it gets a lot of sun throughout the day. You know, the sun comes up, and so it gets, starts getting sun around 10 a.m., and then it gets sun all the way the rest of the day through the heat of the sun. The, and so um, it gets a good solid 10 or 12 hours of sun, and that sucker gets hot. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to get even worse in June. Man, the heat's going to kill me this summer. <laughs> uh, but even, you know, it gets really, really hot. And, and here's what's interesting at the end of the day, as the desert starts to cool down, my wife and I will go out and sit in our patio, and that wall will radiate the heat back onto us. So the desert's cooling down, but that wall acts sort of like a thermal battery. And it, it, it makes the, the patio really quite pleasant. Even as the desert's cooling down, our patio is nice because it's been absorbing this heat all day, and it sends it back out. That's how love works. That's how God's love works. Just as a brick wall is warmed by the sun and then radiates it later at night, so our hearts absorb and are warmed by God's love. And then that love radiates back out to those around us. It's pleasant, it's warm, it's delightful. Jesus is not on earth right now. He's in heaven. He's on his throne. That's what verse 12 tells us. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. His love, His wrath-deflecting, warming love can warm our hearts 
And so when we're warmed, we go out and we love those around us. The sun has gone down, John says. It's, it's dusk, but we still see the effects of the sun by His Holy Spirit in us, by the sun warming us to love one another. That's what he means when he says love is perfected. It means that the job is completed. Jesus' job was perfectly done when he died on the cross, but then his love goes out. It farms out into the whole world through our loving one another, and it's perfected. It's completed when we love those around us. Remember, this passage was written. It's written to exhort and to encourage you and I to love. And what is that love? It means that we look at what Jesus has done, his forgiveness, his deflected wrath, and we warm ourselves, and then we go out and we love those around us. So what does that look like for specifically for us to love? Well, I want to hone the application just a little bit, put a, finer, a little bit of finer point on it. And I want to talk about forgiveness, which this is interesting. I'd written this sermon a while ago, and then I, I went back and I read a, a, a commentary from Augustine. He wrote a homily on this, and he did the exact same thing. He talked about forgiveness in light of this passage. Something about this has to do with forgiveness, probably the idea of deflected wrath. Well, what does the gospel mean? It means that all of us who have been hurt, very real ways, we are called to give up the right to hold wrath against those who hurt us. Yes, some of us have been hurt in tremendous ways, emotionally, physically, even sexually. And if you've been hurt in some of those ways, especially if you've been hurt sexually, that's not okay. That's not okay. That need, there needs to be just penalty for that. And if that's where you are, please come talk to someone on this session, especially if you've been hurt in some ways that is against the law. But all of that said, the gospel frees us from personally bearing the grudge against the other person. Yes, there can be consequences from sin, but we are, the gospel means that we do not have the right to be angry and bitter and wrathful towards others. Why? Because God's wrath has been deflected from us onto Jesus. I have no right to be angry at someone who hurts me, who wrongs me, because I've hurt God far more than anyone can ever hurt me. No matter how badly you've hurt, the need, we, we have to forgive those around us. That is forgiveness. It's giving up the right to condemn. Love, Joan says, is sacrificing the, the right to condemn others. It's forgiving them. That's what, that's what love looks like. And y'all, this has to be the most true in the church. This has to start in the church. And that's what John is telling us here. Imagine, imagine you're in the first century and you're getting this letter you know, you've heard about this letter that's been circulating around the church in Asia Minor and it's supposed to be written by the Apostle John. And you're like, boy, I really want to know what's in that thing. He walked with Jesus. And all of a sudden, the letter shows up and you're like, oh, we're going to read this letter in church today. And uh, it says, beloved, we must love one another. And it says, little children, whoever does not love his brother does not abide in the light. And you're like, ugh, what about that guy, though, right over there in the other pew? It stings, doesn't it? All of a sudden, John is saying, in the church, we are called to radical love for one another. We are called to radical forgiveness of one another. What happens, though, if we begin to do that? If we as a church start to love one another as Jesus loved us? What if we sacrifice for each other in similar ways that Jesus sacrifices for us? 
Man, non-Christians would come in here and say, what, the, what is going on with these Christians? Who are these people? We would be more than just tolerant and polite. We would actually be self-sacrificial as a response to God's love. Imagine the effect that would have on El Paso or if that would have on UTEP or that would have on NMSU if we were the kind of people who are radically self-loving, I mean, uh, self-sacrificing, loving others. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do that in all of us. So what do we see today? We see in three things. We see God's character. God is fundamentally disposed towards his people in love. Second, we see God proves it. He acts in loving ways, and the most loving thing he could possibly do was in sending Jesus Christ to take the wrath that we deserve. And third, our response. We are called to be a radically loving people, to give up the right to be condemned and to love those around us. We see God's amazing love as we let it stew in our heart. We are changed into more loving people. I pray that is true of me. I pray that's true of all of us. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it changes us, for how it convicts us, for how it doesn't leave us where we are comfortable, but that you move close to us. Even when we are hostile towards you, you breathe new life into us. You redeem us and you save us. And now you call us to be sacrificial and loving towards those around us. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for Christ the King. Spirit, I pray that you would fill them with your love and that from the, out of that they would go out and love those around them well. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name with full confidence that you will do all of this. It's in his name we pray. Amen.